0: everybody, Cheryl Atkinson here. Welcome to another edition of the Cheryl Atkinson podcast on justthenews.com. I hope you'll check out all the Just the News podcasts. You can go to justthenews.com and see the list of them on the homepage. Today, 2000 Mules and Election Fraud in the 2020 Presidential Race. Today, an insightful interview with documentary maker Dinesh D'Souza just ahead of the release of the documentary 2,000 Mules. As you'll hear, a private group has done what you might think journalists or law enforcement bodies might have done, spent an incredible amount of time and money gathering surveillance video, cell phone tracking data, and with a whistleblower's help, constructed a documented and shocking story of alleged voter fraud in the 2020 election in five key states. Most interesting of all, as you'll hear, It's entirely possible for a law enforcement investigative body to use the same information to get it for themselves and validate or verify it or disprove it if that's how it turns out. The question is, will anybody do it? Here's the interview with Dinesh D'Souza.
1: Um, I'm uh, Dinesh D'Souza. I came to the United States as an immigrant um, at the age of 17. Well, initially I was an exchange student. I lived in Arizona. I went to Dartmouth College for four years. I worked in my early career in the Reagan White House, and I've been for most of my career a scholar at various think tanks, notably the American Enterprise Institute and then the Hoover Institution. Uh, Mostly I've been a writer, uh, an author, and a speaker, but in 2012, I started making documentary films. The first one was a film about Obama, and I've done a number of them subsequently. So this brings me to my current film, 2000 Mules, which is the sixth documentary. And I think in quite indisputably, the most important.
0: What did you do in the Reagan White House?
1: I was a young policy analyst on the domestic side. So my boss was the domestic policy advisor. Uh, Just as you have a national security advisor, there's a domestic policy advisor on the domestic side. And so I was one of five guys who worked uh, on his staff.
0: And is there an easy way to explain how you came to your general political philosophies in this country?
1: Yeah, to put it briefly, I would say that um, I was not political, obviously, when I arrived in America. Uh, At Dartmouth, I kind of fell in among a group of young conservatives who I realized were so much better read and informed than I was. And had answers to things where I didn't even know that these were questions, Uh, things like, you know, what kind of books should you read in order to be an educated person and who belongs in a liberal liberal here in the classical sense a liberal arts community. And I found these were guys who would use names like Alexander Solzhenitsyn and Milton Friedman and Friedrich Hayek. And I was like, who are these people? So I began to start reading. And it wasn't that I became a conservative, I would say, Cheryl, so much as I realized that this is actually what I've always believed. It was really more of a sense of recognition and then uh, developing a kind of intellectual foundation under it. But I think these are convictions that I've held in some ways uh, pretty much all my life.
0: I first became aware of you a few years ago when somebody passed along a video link to me and the video link was to something I call I'm not sure if that's what everybody calls it if those who know about it I call the sandwich and the wagon speech, you know what I'm talking about. I do. So I, I thought that was just brilliant and I've passed that along to a lot of people I don't think that is a conservative or liberal ideology I think it's just a really clear story of. know, one way certainly to look at things. I urge people, if you're curious, um, it's not very long. I suppose you could find it if you search Dinesh D'Souza sandwich and wagon. What do you think?
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's on YouTube, but it's, you know, it's on a lot of places. And uh, it was a spontaneous um, exchange that came up in a debate that I was in, I believe, somewhere in the northwest but, you know, I find, Cheryl, that, that part of my strength has been over the years, and both in my writing and now in the movies, the ability to take complex concepts and without diluting them intellectually, make them popularly more accessible, using w- helping people to think through things at the first principle level uh, and do it in a way where they get it.
0: Quite brilliant. And, you know, to, to give some of the other side, people can certainly research. That you were criminally charged in the past, I believe it was with making. You can clarify in a moment an illegal campaign contribution, and that was well covered. So, if people want that side of the story, you can certainly search that online and read about it. Maybe you've already heard about it. Uh, this is your opportunity to give your side. I believe, based on a documentary that I watched where you addressed this, you certainly feel or made the case for the idea that you were targeted because of your position and your influence in this world?
1: Well, look, I did exceed the campaign finance law. And in that sense, I broke the law. I've never um, denied that. Uh, I, I did it out of a kind of enthusiasm. In other words, a college friend of mine, one of the first people I got to know well when I came to America, was running for the U.S. Senate in New York. I had given her the, the limit, uh, $10,000. And then I told two of my friends to give her $10,000 and I reimbursed them. So that is in fact illegal. Um, and now the, the, the point is this, that when people do that, um, typically they get you know, a $10,000 fine. Uh, and especially if you have no criminal record and most importantly, if there's no quid pro quo, you're not trying to buy a judicial appointment or get a favorable tax benefit for yourself when you're just doing it because you, you're trying to help a friend. It is inconceivable in, in all of American history, no American has been prosecuted, uh, let alone convicted or locked up for doing what I did. So the issue is that they, uh selected me because I had just right before that made a movie about Obama that was very damning and Obama himself was denouncing me on his website barackobama.com so it's not conjecture on my part to say that my movie upset him and then he unleashed Holder and the other guys to carry out this sort of uh I would call it a kind of a legal hit.
0: And how long how much time did you serve?
1: I was locked up for eight months, overnight in a confinement facility uh, near San Diego. So I was free in the day, but I would check in at seven p.m. at night and check out basically at six a.m. in the morning.
0: Were you alongside violent criminals?
1: Yes, because this was not a. Ironically, if I had gone to white collar federal prison, I would be meeting, you know, dentists and you know businessmen and mayors and so on, and be able to play chess. But this was a confinement center that had everybody from, you know, uh, basically drug trafficking, coyotes, uh, uh, murderers. I mean, it was the whole gamut. And we slept in uh, basically two dorms uh, on two levels, 60 people to a to each level.
0: And I promise we're working our way to your documentary, but I think this background's interesting and important. One of the things that is really sticking in people's craw these days, including friends, whether they're non-political that I have or conservative or liberal, they see sort of this dual standard, uh, particularly with the criminal justice system and the courts. They see where justice is acted upon very quickly in some cases and the heavy hand comes down. It takes no time at all. They see other cases sort of just disappear or linger on for months and years past the time when they would make a difference if, in fact, criminal activity had occurred. So I think your case, which happened some years ago, nonetheless is an example of how disparate treatment can be depending on who you are. And I I think that's sort of the opposite of what this country was supposedly founded on and what we believed ourselves to be for so many years. But let's go up to the 2020 election. Um, One thing that struck me as a journalist is that really in the moments, well, let me go back. Leading up to the election, some six to eight months ahead of time, analysts started saying, you know, we probably won't know who wins until weeks or months, you know, maybe many months later. And I I thought, what are they prepping us for? Because there was no way to assume that, no reason to start building that narrative on the front end, unless to me, they knew or expected some strategy. And indeed, you know, it turned out to be this mess with the results changing overnight in many places, all the questions raised, but how quick journalists swooped in, these, these are my colleagues, to without evidence claim that there had been no fraud. You know, and it was just it was just stunning to me that they with no firsthand knowledge or information were going ahead and making these declarations of fact. It's not something I don't think in our industry we would have done six, seven years ago because reporting was different. You had to, you didn't make your own comments and conclusions. You By and large, try to report what other people said and do your own fact-finding. That didn't happen in 2020. What were your initial thoughts as you saw this whole election come down?
1: Well, you're touching on a really important point, which is that there are two forms of dogmatism about the election, both of which are completely unsupported by any uh, real factual proof. Uh, The first one is the idea that this was the most secure election in history. And if you turn to the people who say that, and they they literally assert it like this is some kind of uh, truth coming down from on high, you say, well, how how do you know that? They're like, well, election officials say it was secure. And, uh, you know, this would be like after a bank robbery, the bank manager said that all the procedures were in place. Uh, So the idea that this was the most secure election in history has been presented as a sort of Axiom, even though there is really no basis for it. Now, admittedly, there are many people on the other side who over the past year and a half have made wild conjectures about election fraud. And those are equally, in many cases, unproven. I'm not saying they're all unproven, but anomalies, for example, are not a form of proof. Uh, If you find a dead guy over here who voted or another guy over there who moved out of state, You might have found episodic fraud, but it's not necessarily systematic fraud, and it certainly is not enough by itself to make the difference. So all of this has been going on and I've stayed out of it. I mean, I haven't said virtually a word about election fraud since the election itself. But then I came across through some friends of mine and through this group, a voter integrity group called True the Vote, a whole different caliber of looking at this, a whole different caliber of evidence. And when I saw it, I realized that that I am that this, is, this is something that needs to be taken seriously, um, something that I had not thought possible, which is in other words, a year later, it's like a year after the crime, can you actually go back and figure out who did it? And the answer turns out unbelievably to be yes. Why? Because the people who pulled off this fraud left digital fingerprints And and from a movie maker point of view, this is like a bonanza for me. They also left highly incriminating video evidence. And so that's really what this movie does, is it? it doesn't try to look at all these different types of fraud. Uh, it doesn't talk about machines. It doesn't talk about any of that. It doesn't talk about foreign hacking. It focuses on one and as it turns out a very old type of fraud, and it uses two independent lines of investigation, namely geotracking and video to make what I think is really a definitive case.
0: Tell us the title of the documentary and how that name what it refers to.
1: So the documentary is called 2000 Mules. And um, the reason for 2000 is that we have identified at least they're actually far more. This is a ridiculously conservative, this is a ridiculous undercount of the mules, but at least 2000 highly active mules and who is a mule? Well, we kind of know that in the sex trafficking or the drug trafficking or even the human trafficking context, a mule is a kind of operative who, who, sort, of, uh, who sort of moves the, the merchandise, if you will. Well, same here, this, these are ballot trafficking mules and what they're doing is highly illegal. They are paid operatives who collect collect illegal votes at a so-called uh, voter stash house, typically a left-wing nonprofit organization. And then they deliver these votes en masse uh, to multiple drop boxes, often dropping three, five, or 10 votes in each drop box so as not to create a massive spike of votes, but they go almost like the mailman on routes, And some of them hit 20, 50, in some cases, over a hundred drop boxes during the election period.
0: And what is illegal about that? If the ballots actually came from real people and were valid, what's a, if that's the case, what's illegal about what they did?
1: So in no state uh, is it legal to pay anyone, uh, let alone a, a mule, to deliver your ballot. That is illegal in all 50 states. So let's start with that. Even in states like California, which allow vote trafficking, if you live in California as the most liberal vote tra- vote harvesting law in the country, I could give my ballot to anyone and say, hey, go drop it off in the mailbox. But if I give them $50 to do it, that becomes an illegal ballot right there. And if and if it can be proven to be so, that ballot would not be counted. Why? Because the chain of custody is broken. The sort of sanctity of the ballot is, is contaminated. So even though vote harvesting is permitted in some states, now, I want to be clear, in the five states that we look at in the movie, namely um, uh, Georgia, uh, Arizona. Michigan, Wisconsin and Philadelphia, in those states, none of those states have open vote harvesting the way California does in Georgia, for example, you are allowed to give your ballot to a family member uh, to go drop it off if you are in a nursing home you can give it to a caregiver but that's it you can't give it to anybody else. So right away when you're dealing with these professional mules hired by left wing organizations to drop off the ballots, all those ballots are invalid. So start with that. Then the second question you're raising, which is a more subtle one is, is, the original, is it possible that there could be a legitimate ballot nevertheless illegally delivered? Uh, and my answer to that question is in general, no, because there's no legitimate ballot. If you were at home, Cheryl, and you filled out your ballot, you would have no way to get that ballot to some left-wing organization, let alone that left-wing organization collecting hundreds if not thousands of those ballots And then setting up an operation, which, by the way, is identical in all the five key states, to deliver those ballots. This is coordinated illegal fraud.
0: As a journalist, this is the kind of story, and I haven't seen the documentary yet, so I'll say if this happened and the evidence you have, that I would like to have the evidence. And, of course, sometimes journalists like me, we seek it out. You know, I produce a a weekly TV show, among other things, so I don't just take off for weeks and months and go investigate something, much as I'd like to do. Sometimes we have a whistleblower come to us and bring information that we work very hard to verify and can ultimately use and get other evidence. How did you get this evidence and verify it? I know you said you had geo-tracking. How do you access that kind of stuff? I don't know how to do that.
1: Right. So True the Vote is an election integrity organization run by Catherine Engelbrecht and Greg Phillips. And Greg Phillips has worked in election intelligence for about 30 years. Now, these guys have set up this is an organization set up in 2010. So it's been around for over a decade. And in fact, they did get uh, through their hotline uh, an informant in Georgia who basically said, hey, listen, I'm being paid to drop off these ballots. Uh, and this guy went on to describe in somewhat elaborate detail his whole operation, and so this was the whistleblower. So, through the vote, then decided: listen, if this is going on, how, is there a way to track at what scale it's going on? And they had a genius idea. The genius idea was simply this: that today, Cheryl, um, geo tracking, which is basically monitoring the movement of cell phones, is a huge operation in the country. I mean, it it was. It was in a more primitive form, the way that we got bin Laden, not because we tracked his cell phone, but because the CIA tracked the cell phones of some of his associates law enforcement uses geo tracking all the time. If a woman is murdered in a park in the middle of the night, uh, they look to see whether any cell phones in that park at that time, if there were five of them. Um, then you go talk to those people and find out which of them, if any, was the suspect so. Um, uh, January sixth, defendants were arrested because their phones were tracked in the capital, and uh, and then they were unmasked. so-called, by going to places like Google and saying who owns this phone or who who visited this particular website. So this is actually something that goes on every single day in the country. If you've ever gotten a notification on your phone, sometimes you're on, you know you're in a different state and you find you get that the weather app is telling you what the weather is going to be like in Naples, and you're like, how do they know I'm in Naples? Yeah, geo tracking. So, well, so, this is so a, private
0: citizens, can they pay for this data and get it themselves?
1: Yes. Now, you can't get it at like Walmart, but the truth of it is there are aggregators and there are four or five big ones. And what they do is they collect this data and they sell it and it's available commercially. You just buy it. And so through the vote, they got a donation for $2 million and they spent over a million dollars to buy, get this, 10 trillion pings of the movement of cell phones in the key democratic areas. So Fulton County, um, uh, Atlanta area, Milwaukee, the Detroit area, the greater Philadelphia area. And this was between October 1 uh, and the an election day. And in Georgia, they also bought it for the, for the Senate runoffs in early January.
0: And how did they get the video? Because I have seen the trailer and there's video of people dropping off ballots at boxes.
1: Right, and when you go to the movie, you're gonna be like blown away because of the amount of video. It turns out true. The Vote has 4 million minutes of video. Now, normally, if you have that much video, like you wouldn't know where to look, you'd have to spend like weeks looking at the video. But the good news is that the geo-tracking supports the video. And here's what I mean. If you run a search, Cheryl, and you find out that let's just say, for example, in the few days leading up to the election in Atlanta, you have a mule, a particular guy, an operative who stops by five left wing nonprofit organizations picks up these batches of ballots and then goes to say 40 drop boxes then you know you can you can literally create what's called a pattern of life you can show the movement of that guy and then you go and see if there's surveillance video and sure enough there he is you find him so the geo tracking points to the video and then the video confirms the geo tracking
0: to get the surveillance video do they have to go to buildings around where the dropbox was and ask the owner of the building for surveillance?
1: No, 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 Cheryl. The, the, all this video has been installed by the states themselves. Now, sometimes they've done it using private money from people like Mark Zuckerberg and others, but all you have to do is apply for the video through public information records. Now, a lot of these places that were supposed to take video and in fact said they would take video and the election rules call for taking video did not in fact do video. So there's some places where you can't get video, but there is video that is available and essentially by doing battle with these public authorities through the vote was able to obtain this video just through public channels. This is not video that like someone dropped off in the middle of the night like Project Veritas style. No, this is all official surveillance video. Its authenticity is not open to question. In fact, the states themselves have a copy of that video.
0: Wow, that's so interesting. So they look through it, they verify what they think are these people Uh, repeatedly delivering, illegally delivering ballots to drop boxes. What were you able to determine or what were they able to determine through the vote in terms of patterns and impact?
1: So this is actually fully unfurled in the movie with a kind of mathematical depth that I think you'll find very impressive. Basically, what, what I do in the movie, and this is really more me and not so much through the vote, is I run the math. Um, There is a very good way to do that you know the number of mules, you know the number of, of drop boxes that they stop at so you can calculate the average number of drop boxes. And you can create a very good estimate of the number of ballots that they're dropping off per drop, I say that because this whole operation is smart enough that they know hey listen. Listen, we're not going to go drop off 500 ballots because it'll create a massive spike in the chain of custody documents, people will go why is this dropbox suddenly got seven times as many votes as every other dropbox so they don't do that. This is why they almost mailman style go on a route in which they go to many drop boxes, dropping a few ballots at a time, all of this is in the movie and I add up the numbers. And by and large, you know, I think I can tell you with almost Euclidean certainty what the impact was on the election. Once you know who's doing it, and on whose behalf, it's pretty clear. Now, one thing you can't do, and I gotta be fair here, you can't go back and retrieve the ballot. Because as I think you know, when there's a mail, mail-in or absentee ballot, once the ballot is detached from the envelope, the envelope is the only thing that contains the name and the address and the signature. Once the ballot is peeled out of that envelope, those two pieces of evidence separate one from the other. So some people go, oh, Dinesh, let's go back and get those ballots. No, you can't do that. But what you can say is who are the organizations that are doing this? Where is this occurring? As it turns out in heavily democratic precincts. Uh, Who are the mules? We found out a lot about who these mules actually are. So by and large, it's very clear that this is a left-wing democratic operation well-organized in the critical states to tip the election for Joe Biden.
0: And did you determine in your view that that did have an impact? In other words, that Donald Trump would have won in places if not for the allegedly illegal activity of the mules?
1: Yes, Um, and and I say that with, with a certain degree of trepidation and caution because When I started on this project, I said to myself, I'm not going to go there because I don't want to make this about Trump. Uh, This is really about the integrity of our democratic process. But once I began to run the math on the 2000 mules themselves, and, and think of it this way, if you go out on your front porch and you're trying to estimate the number of ants on the porch, and you turn on your flashlight, and you start counting the ants inside the ring of light that your flashlight has, you obviously know that that's only a small part of the total number of ants on the porch because the light is only covering a small part of the porch right so so initially I said to myself, let me just estimate the fraud, looking at the ants that are in my light. And I realized that that alone, that alone is enough to tip the election. So then I realized look it's going to be dishonest it's going to be it's 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 I got to be able to spell out the implications of what we're finding. So the bottom line is we're not talking about 20 votes here or 50 votes there we are talking about a 100 hundreds of thousands of votes. In just these five areas. We're not even talking about the whole states. We're only talking about essentially what's called geo fenced urban areas in five states uh, and, and, and five sort of urban areas in those states.
0: Is there any reason to think or postulate that this sort of thing happened outside of those five states as well?
1: I, I think that that's pure inference. I mean, I, I think it is. It would be odd if it didn't happen in some of the other places that were also close. I mean, if if I was organizing this and I thought that I could win Ohio or Florida or Nevada, you know, I would probably do it there too. Uh, but what Truth the Vote did because of the limits of resources, they just said, look, let's just look at the actual five places, very small areas that tipped this election, and particularly in some of the states like Georgia and Arizona, where the whole election came down to roughly 10,000 votes in each of those states. So let's just let's just do a limited search. And that's what this movie does. It it doesn't try to be too ambitious. It doesn't go into areas of fraud. I, I, into all areas of fraud. And so uh, it, it zooms into, and what turns out to be interesting here, Cheryl, is this is old style fraud, right? I mean, the idea of by and large, getting votes from a public housing complex or from a group of homeless people or, or collecting votes in nursing homes from comatose people where you can vote their votes for them and no one would know the difference. Or you go to dirty voter rolls and pick people who have moved out of state and you know fill out their ballots. I mean, this stuff has been going on in small scale since Tammany Hall in the middle of the 19th century. but typically its effects were one percent, two percent of the election. I think the real difference is that COVID enabled the fraudsters to ramp this up in an unbelievable way. And that's why that's what makes 2020 so different and so significant.
0: How did you get at the heart of what organizations are allegedly responsible for this, uh, this type of alleged fraud that you're describing?
1: So what True the Vote did, and I want to credit them, they're the ones who did this heavy lifting, is they identified a group of these left-wing organizations and simply looked to see what the evidence pointed. So some of these organizations were not involved, but others were. So you begin to, once you begin to follow, the wonderful thing about geotracking is, let us if I were to geotrack you today, your cell phone would begin where you woke up. And then if you went to McDonald's, I would know that you went to McDonald's and then you, let's say, went to your podcast and then you stopped by at a restaurant to meet a friend and then you came back home and all of that, that whole pattern of life, if you will, is tracked under the geo-tracking. So it's not just a snapshot, it's a moving record. And so what, what True the Vote was able to do once they zoom into the mules, is they were able to follow those mules for days and in some cases weeks. In fact, they even went to the I mean, and this to me is the extent of the rigor of this. They even followed the mules when it was not election time to see if for some weird reason they had, let's just say someone had a kick. They wanted to go to drop boxes because they love drop boxes. They like sort of standing in front of a drop box. Well, then they would do that when it's not the election time also. But so they look to see, do these mules operate in that identical way when it's not election time? And of course, common sense shows And and of course the evidence confirms that they don't, they were running an illegal operation.
0: Based on what you're telling me, it seems to me that law enforcement would be able to duplicate and verify what this partisan organization has found. You know, let's say people are gonna say, well, this is a conservative group, talk more about, I'm gonna talk more about that in just a moment, but it should be possible for uh, another body to go in and duplicate what they found, correct?
1: Absolutely. I mean, True the Vote is not claiming that you know, sort of take our word for it. True, what the True the Vote has is the cell phone IDs of these 2,000 plus mules. Now they don't have the names of the mules. Why? Because you have to go to the provider and and get the name. But law enforcement can do that. In fact, they do it every day. So all they have to do is zoom in onto the mules. These are all felonies, arrest them. Um, Find out who paid them, who organized this. So there's a very obvious and logical follow-up to the movie. Uh, By the way, uh, Truth the Vote has provided its data uh, to uh, the state of Georgia, to the Secretary of State of Georgia, and Raffensperger, the Secretary of State, by the way, the same guy who who had affirmed that the election was wonderful and and conducted without problems, has opened and has reopened an investigation into fraud in Georgia solely upon the evidence provided by True the Vote, and he said that publicly.
0: Interesting. True the Vote, correct me if I'm wrong here, but some years ago was a key player in the alleged targeting of the IRS of conservative groups. Am I right on that?
1: Yes, Catherine Engelbrecht testified before Congress in around 2013 or 14, this was in the Obama years, and her organization was relatively new i mean she had started it a year or a couple of years before and then to her amazement shortly after starting this organization a, a massive alphabet super federal agencies descended upon her and began to you know audit her business and it was the irs and it was the fbi it was even the bureau of alcohol and tobacco uh, and firearms so uh, she testified about whoa, you know, I was uh, all this time I was operating as a normal citizen. Nothing happens to me. The moment I formed this organization, the whole US government is after me. That's when she probably came to to public attention. And that's actually when I first learned her name.
0: I interviewed her for CBS. I think I've interviewed her once for my TV program, Full Measure. It's really an incredible story. The harassment she went through again, in a double standard sort of way, things happened to her that just don't happen to other people, you know, when she had formed her group and couldn't get approval as to operate under the IRS code. And then, as you said, got descended upon in a very bullyingish, heavy-handed way by nearly every federal agency you could think of. So her story's pretty incredible too. Can you tell us where people, where and when they'll be able to see 2,000 Mules?
1: So 2,000 Mules opens next week. It's the premier week. Uh, and we're having some kind of special events now we have a limited uh, theatrical showing so it's showing in 300 theaters on only two days may 2nd and may 4th at the 7 p.m showing and all of that is on the website which is just 2000 the number 2000 mules.com so that's the theatrical part of it we're having a virtual premiere out of a studio in las vegas where you can essentially kind of zoom in you buy a ticket you zoom in uh, there's an opening program. You watch the movie. There's a live Q&A to follow. That's on uh, Saturday, May 7th. And then the next day, which is May 8th, uh, the movie is available for digital download. Now, interestingly, we live in an age of censorship, so I've put it on uncancelable platforms, two of them. One is called SalemNow.com, which is the platform of the Salem Media Company. Uh, SalemNow.com, and the other is the platform called Locals, which is owned by Rumble. So um, the Rumble-owned platform Locals is going to be heavily promoting this movie, and of course it's a it's a free speech platform. So I'm really excited that this is it's going to be available for anyone to see, but not in the usual ways not on Amazon Prime, not on iTunes, not on Netflix. You got to see it, in, and 2000Meals.com is the place where you get all the different options. You can obviously order DVDs. Uh, as well. Uh, So there are five, six different ways to see the movie, and this is a way that the left can't block it from being seen.
0: Well, as a journalist, and this is really, I think, how journalists, at least the ones that are not agenda journalists that are actually trying to cover hard news, we should all be interested in this. They did the job, if this stuff is verified, that I wish I could do or had done or had the access to the whistleblower and the information to check out myself and have the time to do it. So I'm glad somebody is. I wonder what will come of it. I'll be interested to see if it is um, also verified, if anyone attempts to verify from a law enforcement perspective and take any action on it. And again, you know, when you talk about election fraud and the extent to which it may have occurred, one thing I realized after the 2020 election is our system isn't set up to do anything about it. In other words, in a timely fashion that could matter. If there ever were, let's say hypothetically, pretty big election fraud, by the time that would work its way through our system in the courts, it would be far too long to ever do anything about changing the election or making the original result stand as it would have. I mean, I think that was one of my takeaways after 2020, how long it took to, you know, how how quickly the courts expected hard evidence that was impossible to have in order you to- I think to the other election.
1: problem is that, you know, that that so much of the media is, is um... Uh, is active in suppressing rather than uncovering truth. I mean, AP, in order to shut this topic down, basically said, okay, well, we've looked at all the swing states, we have found 475 cases of election fraud, which even if they were all true, couldn't possibly make a difference in the election. Now, let's just step back and think about the reasoning of this. The reasoning of this is identical to me saying, I've looked at these five states and I've found 475 court cases of somebody who's accused of taking illegal drugs. And therefore, based upon that, I conclude that no more than 475 people take illegal drugs in these five states. I mean, this is just ridiculous. The number of actual cases that end up in court is hardly a a true measure of the amount of fraud any more than it's a true measure of the amount of drug use.
0: Bingo. And I also heard journalists say, you know, unsupported and illogical things such as the machines can't make mistakes, and we did a there was a machine recount, and the machine showed this. And at the same time, I was publishing an article about a case. I forget which big city, something like Philadelphia, where in a separate election they had convicted the guy operating the machines of being part of on the take. So every time they did a machine recount, it came out one way because the guy running the machine was on the take. I mean, it's t- the idea that because you've done certain recounts or because the people like you say in charge of the elections and security say it was secure and then journalists simply based on that declare that to be the case. It's just sort of a bizarre state of affairs where we are.
1: Yeah, a lot of the writing on this and I'm thinking here for example of the recent uh, documentary film called Rigged or even Molly Hemingway's very good book called Rigged on this subject is that they tend to focus on the procedural irregularities that enabled the fraud. It's kind of like saying that at a bank, you know, they, they told the security guards, you don't have to work at night or they turned off the cameras or they told the tellers, you don't really have to match the signatures all that closely and all of that happened. But see, none of that proves that anybody robbed the bank. I think what makes this movie so explosive is, and this is what got me to jump into it is, I'm like, you know, you have video of these guys breaking the window and coming into the bank. And so this is not even a question of, you know, is, you know, law enforcement is needed. Yes, law enforcement is needed. But this is a case where the jury, which is in this case, the American people, can actually see, see the crime in the process of being committed.
0: And that's I look forward to seeing it. 2000mules.com for anybody who wants to find out more. And I know you're super busy. Thank you for your time today. My pleasure. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and that you'll leave a review, subscribe, and share it with your friends. Check out my other podcast, Full Measure After Hours, and all the Just the News podcasts wherever you like to listen. And now you can support independent journalism causes, it's never been more important, by visiting CherylAtkinson.com and click the store tab. There are some thought-provoking and fun products designed exclusively for independent and free-thinking people like you, with proceeds benefiting a variety of independent reporting causes. Do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself.